You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we'll have full market coverage ahead. Inflation, those worries they call the rate hike bets, come down. Will this fuel still the tech sector rally? As APEC gets underway in San Francisco, tech executives look to meet with China. Xi will bring you the details. And Apple's largest assembler of iPhones. Well, it warns of a sales drop as demand concerns linger in the smartphone market. There's a lot happening in the show today, and the stocks behind me kind of reflect the stories we'll cover. We're going to look at Foxconn and its earnings, the main contract manufacturer that assembles the iPhone. A worrying outlook, but Apple actually up, moving higher. Grindr had strong earnings. The stock up significantly. We will speak to the Grindr CEO. And then finally, Alphabet, parent company of Google. We're going to go to our reporter to talk about what YouTube's doing in the context of AI-generated content and content moderation. In terms of a stock story, there is one name that is a big story story in its own right, and that is NVIDIA. NVIDIA shares up around 1.5% in the session, but currently up for a 10th straight day. And if they close higher and in the green, that 10-day win streak matches the record that NVIDIA set in December of 2016. It is the best-performing stock on the S&P 500 year-to-date. It is the best-performing stock on the NASDAQ 100 mm. year-to-date, and its gain is almost 240% year-to-date. The story in the near term has been around AI, right? and their product announcements, but also in this session getting a boost from that cooler-than-expected inflation print. And then it is part of the so-called Magnificent Seven, those key stocks that have just driven some of the rally throughout the year. Is it still time to be buying into them? We're pleased to welcome the perfect guest, Laffa Tengler, Investment CIO, Nancy Tengler, who I think has some key thoughts on really whether there's still fuel to the fire of the tech rally. Is there when you're getting these sorts of inflation prints? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the market loves it. But but let's also not forget that these stocks have been delivering all the way through uh, the, the rate hike regime from the Fed uh, and then again with inflation higher. We have argued that inflation comes down symmetrically, uh, but not necessarily linearly. So, linearly. Um, so I think that um, this, this is a, a good number, not a huge surprise. And we'll see what happens in December. But, you know, Caroline, I wrote a piece that this market is analogous to 1990 
where we had inflation above 3% for the entire decade, yields between 5 and 8% on average for the entire decade, a war, a recession, productivity like we have now. And then in addition to that, the indices were up, you know, 400% over 400% for the Dow and S&P and eight, over 800% for the NASDAQ. And Nancy, to be clear, in your mind, have we hit peak rate? Ed, I think so, uh, but that doesn't mean we're not going to continue to see volatility. Uh, I, I think, you know, we've never had this much supply come on so quickly. And so I think we'll continue to get, you know, the market will react to bits of news. We'll see what the PPI says. Uh, but in general, I think we're kind of there. Going back to that 90s reminiscing and perhaps echo that we currently see in the current market, Nancy. Is it that therefore we can continue to run on the same sort of seven names that the market has loved thus far? Or do you need to get broader, wider in where you anticipate some of the gains are going to come from? I do think you need to get wider, Caroline. I mean, I think we need industrials to to work again, Uh, maybe energy. I think financials have to do some of the heavy lifting. But in general, if you look at the Magnificent Seven, this is not my work. It's Jason Trenert's at Strategus. And you, you, he, he separated it out as its own sector. Margins are growing faster. Earnings and revenue growth growing faster than rest of market and rest of technology. And so I think you have to give them the tip of the hat and say, I may not want to own all of them, but I, I want to own some of them and I need to have them in my portfolio because the tailwinds, the secular tailwinds are at their back. Uh, speaking of tailwinds, Nancy, you heard me talk about NVIDIA at the top of the program, up for a 10th straight day, matching its, its record run that it set in 2016. It is the best performing stock on both the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100. What do you make of that run? What is your attitude towards it? I wished I owned it. <laughs> it was was never cheap enough for us. Uh, it was for about 20 minutes on one day, and then we just missed it. Um, I think importantly, what you know from last quarter's earnings is that the multiple actually went down despite the stock running up. So I think this is one of those stocks like Amazon a decade ago, like Walmart two or three decades ago, that you just step aside and let it run, and hopefully you own it. I, I, we own Broadcom, so we you know we've we've had some of the benefits of AI chip and cloud computing. We own a lot of the Magnificent Seven. We just don't own that name. I think if you own it, you keep it and, and let it run. And if you, if you don't own it, you wait on all of these stocks for pullbacks. And what would be the spark of a pullback, do you think, Nancy? Well, I think we got one in October so um, and September. I think if we uh, and that was based on, you know, the, the Fed saying they were going to be um, higher for longer. But I would argue in the in the medium term, that doesn't matter because we've had much higher rates and strong investment performance, particularly from technology. And, and then I think if if we get conflicting data and we just continue to hear the Fed speak, the market is still reacting to that on a daily basis. Um, but I, I would point out that the reason I think you want to own these stocks for the long term is that in periods of tight labor markets, and there have historically been three or four, but one again that's mostly analogous, which was around the 80s, 90s, these stocks, the spend in technology has gone up and then these stocks have outperformed. So I, I don't think the trade's over. Someday it will be, but I think for now you, you do want to wait for volatility, of maybe a weak earnings report, um, 
you know, a Fed, another Fed speak period where we get, you know, some conflicting data like we did from Powell meeting. He was a little more dovish. Last speech, he, he was less so. And the market took it to heart. Those are your times. That's the time when you step in. Stepping into, well, and NVIDIA, as we're just hearing from Ed, is up more than 200%. Microsoft's just hugely outperformed. So has the likes of even Meta in this year of efficiency, Nancy. Can you talk about if there's any consistency on what you're seeing in some of the companies that you like? Is there anything that makes them stand out uniquely that therefore wants you make to add? Because I know you take individual names and, and bring them to us. Yeah, so I, I'm happy to do that. So I think, I don't know that you would necessarily recall this, but we were adding to the group last fall. Mm. Um, there was not a good piece of news to be found, but they were slowly and quietly delivering strong earnings growth. So the names that are in our 12 best ideas portfolio are Microsoft, strong management team, Azure's taking share. Uh, they've got, they're going to monetize AI. Uh, we're seeing them cram it into every nook and t- cranny of offices and every other aspect of their business. The the deal went through with Activision. They launched 365 Copilot. I think you're going to see this company continue to take share and dominate. And it's been a, you know, it's an obvious name, but I don't think you want to walk away from it at these levels. Adobe is the unsung hero of AI. Uh, it's, it's also a good management team. That is our theme. We pay very close attention to management. I think that's a name you want to buy on pullbacks. It's a little rich right now. ServiceNow, I've talked about before on your program, Bill McDermott um, delivered a beat, beat, and raise last quarter, and he's a great salesman, and he, he knows how to run the business. They are taking IT spend away from other providers because they're in the sweet spot of navigating uh, cloud computing and generative AI computing. And then Amazon, I think uh, Tony Jassy got Tim Cooked um, when he <laughs> took over. I bought Apple after Tim Cook was heralded as no Steve Jobs, and that was in about 2012 to 2013. I, I we were adding to our Amazon last year. I think you can still buy it here. He has figured it out. He's cut costs. And we're paying very close attention to the healthcare uh, portion of their business. But the cloud business is still growing remarkably. I think that's a name you just buy and you put it away. Nancy, you didn't mention Mark Zuckerberg. You mentioned everyone else. Meta is a magnificent, magnificent seven stock. Do you hold Zuckerberg in the same leadership bracket as those? Uh, no. So we owned it many years ago. We described ourselves as reluctant shareholders. We sold it at levels at uh, about current levels and a little bit higher. We missed getting back in. But as with Google, though we do own some of Google, not in our 12 best ideas portfolios as the names I just discussed were. But um, we don't like the the two share class. It's it's really an advertising business. I think the meta misstep and the spending at both companies needs to be reined in. Uh, With Google, we, you know, we're a little more optimistic because we like Ruth Porat as at, in the new role uh, as president. But I, I know you can still make money on it. I just think there's better places and more interesting places to be. And I, I, I don't like um, I haven't really been thrilled with the leadership, even though the stock price has delivered and they cut costs. That's great. You can only do that for so long. Nancy, we always love you coming here, giving us our straight talk, talking about the individual names as well. Nancy Tangler of Laffer Tangler Investments, always great to catch up with you. Thank you very much indeed.
Meanwhile, speaking of CEOs, in San Francisco, all eyes are on APEC as leaders from the world of tech attend. Hopeful, in fact, for an audience with one China President Xi Jinping. In fact, CEOs of Microsoft, City, Tesla, they're all looking to meet with the President Xi. And according to sources, he's even expected to hold dinner with some executives. For many corporations, the agenda is simple. They're ready to get back to business in China, Ed. And part of the agenda for Xi Jinping to meet with President Biden is to announce an agreement that would see Beijing crack down on the manufacture and export of fentanyl, according to sources. The fentanyl crisis is something I discussed with San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Have a listen just to work with the U.S. and to ensure um, that the resources uh, that are being sent uh, out of China that come into either the U.S. or Mexico are cut off to the fullest extent possible, that we work together um, in order to ensure that this deadly poison that is killing people in San Francisco in significant numbers and all over the country, that we're able to combat this, to stop it. So San Francisco, Cairo, becomes the center of the U.S.-China relationship this week, mm. right? The social issue of fentanyl, the supply chain for that that we discussed, and then all of these CEOs who basically say, let's get back to good terms with China. And it's interesting who might likely be there. And of course, we know Tesla has key supply chain issue with Shanghai, in particular in China, right. more broadly. What was interesting is sort of who's not there. And I know Tim Cook's just been to China himself, but notable that as like a California executive not there, Meta, we understand, of course, starting to sell their VR equipment in China. Interesting that Zuck isn't there either. Yeah, and AI, again, is going to be a talking point because while there's some kind of move forward on the relationship, in the background, you still have U.S. technology export curbs on chips to China that are directly impacted the, the AI supply chain. So a big week ahead. I'm sure it feels pretty busy where you are. Meanwhile, coming up, look, iPhone maker Honhai, public arm of Foxconn, growing concerns sales may drop in the current quarter. We'll have more on its tepid outlook. That's next. But look, Ed, you're looking at some particular movers. Yeah, Fisker, the EV maker, down 18.2% over the last couple of days, 24% in this session. Delayed its 10Q. It has got all kind of material weakness and accounting issues, revenues missing estimates, and basically it's behind schedule on delivering its contract manufactured EVs, a name we continue to track. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, like, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Okay, time for Talking Tech. And first up, C, Southeast Asia's biggest internet company, is reeling from profit loss in its third quarter. The Singapore-based company posted a net loss of $149 million compared with a profit of $322 million the previous quarter. The e-commerce growth in the region has been pressured by macro conditions and intense competition in the sector. And Snap is reportedly teaming up with Amazon to let its users shop for products directly from ads on the Snapchat app. Shares are rising after the information reported that the deal is being launched for U.S. customers. This comes after last week's news of a similar deal with Meta for shopping on Facebook and Instagram. Plus, Huawei and Xiaomi are leading the resurgence in China's smartphone market. Phone sales were up 11% in the first four weeks of last month, compared to the same period a year ago, according to CounterPoint Research. The domestic brands picked up the slack, while Apple's latest set of phones had an unusually muted debut in China so far. Karen. And let's stick on that muted demand for some of Apple's iPhones and what that means for its key manufacturer, Honhai. It's actually been revising its outlook after profits. They beat expectations, but revenue still under pressure. Remember, this is the public arm of Foxconn, and it's been warning that sales may fall as demand for the iPhone remains kind of in flux. Very pleased to say that we're joined by Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. And perhaps not that surprising, given that we know that there's sort of a cultural backlash somewhat against Apple, use of the phones in government as well, but how much is this starting to be reflected in the supply chain? Well, so think of, you know, how these companies are connected, TSMC and Foxconn. And if you see weakness, you know, with TSMC calling out PCs and smartphones continuing to be weak, it's not a surprise that, you know, Foxconn did the same. And at the end of the day, the consumer electronics market, we don't know if it has bottomed. Everyone keeps talking about it. With PCs, we saw a couple of data points this quarter that suggested a bottom, but we don't know that yet. And I think uh, this is a confirmation that consumer may be weak, you know, in the first half of next year as well. A lot of this, Mandeep, is like reading the tea leaves of third-party data and suppliers, right? Go back to Apple's earnings, and Tim Cook talked about when he visited the country that they claimed to have the top four smartphone handsets in a market that they saw as contracting, and you kind of draw the conclusion, well, does, does that mean you're taking market share? What do we wait for to know what's really happening with Apple on the data side? I mean, look, uh, with Apple, clearly, you know, the iPhone 15 isn't going to be a big upgrade cycle. That's what it seems like. And everyone is talking about what they can do at the chip level to really drive that, you know, Gen AI uh, kind of adoption at the edge level. But uh, look, for a Foxconn, it's more about what else can they diversify with. And uh, there is demand for AI servers. In fact, NVIDIA, when they are making these Gen AI servers, they're having TSMC make the chip. And uh, uh, Foxconn is the assembler. So clearly, there is demand uh, when it comes to AI servers. I think it's just the consumer side is uh, continues to be weak. And these companies, all of them, TSMC, Foxconn, 
have a pretty sizable consumer exposure. In fact, I would say it's almost 60% of their business, whereas AI servers is still less than 5% of their uh, overall footprint. All right, Mandeep Singh of Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you. Shares of Grindr absolutely popping today. Let's talk about the social, the dating app, as it raises its full-year guidance, posted third-quarter revenue that's higher than 39% year-over-year. We're now on the CEO of Grindr, George Arison. George, it's great to have you on the show. And just this growth, this managing to beat, how, what's driving it at the moment? Is it all about subscriptions? Uh, it's almost all coming from subscriptions and add-on products. We did have a great quarter, um, grew 39% year over year, and a lot of it had to do with us launching a weekly pricing option. Users have been asking for a lower price tier that they could use to entry point into the product on a paying basis, and we launched that um, you know, earlier this year, and the results of that have been really, really positive. So really happy about that. You know, Grindr is really under-monetized. Our conversion to paying customers is much lower than our peer set, partly because we've never really focused on that. It was all about offering a lot of free features versus paying features. And now as we transition to offering more paying features, I think we're seeing really positive results. And there's a lot more room to continue with that because obviously we're at like half the pair penetration that some of our peers are. So let's talk about what, 13 and a half million average monthly users. Where then, if you're managing to continue to grow, do you spend, do you invest? Is it more about marketing? Is it about branding? Is it about more actually the underlying product and, and perhaps interweaving AI within it? Yeah, almost all of our investments are around people to build technology and product um, because we have a ton of opportunity to create new features that users want. Uh, for example, right now we're working on Teleport, which is going to let users show themselves in a different market from the one they're in today, um, something that users have been asking for for a long time. We spend virtually no money on marketing. Um, it's like less than 1% of our, our revenue um, this year. Uh, and you know, we'll expect that number to go up a little bit as we focus on our brand to tell our story a little better, but it's going to be pretty minor. We don't do pay user acquisition. We're really fortunate that it's the product and the fact that people already know about us that drives the user growth. Our amount growth is also really strong and has been for a long time now, but it's all driven by word of mouth and by top of funnel user products that we build, like albums, for example, that went live last year. We added video to albums this year, and you know, users have loved that. Over a billion albums shared in less than a year, uh, which is really fantastic. So, George, 40% top-line growth, 20% paying user growth, and then 8% active user growth. What should that tell us about who's using the platform and how they're using it? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's telling you that as we launch more features that people want to pay for, a larger percentage of people will convert to becoming paying customers, and we have a lot more to do on that over the next couple of years. Uh, and then we also know that younger people come back to the platform, right? Unlike a lot of other social products that have been replaced by one platform by the next, et cetera, right? TikTok replacing Instagram and so forth. That hasn't really happened in our space. You, the users have been coming back to Grindr as um, they've kind of become 18 plus. Uh, in part because they know that that's where everybody else in that community is. And so the community aspect of Grindr really helps with that, uh, and that's something that we want to continue to lean in on. Now, at the same time, we do see a lot of opportunity with what I'd call older users. Now, that's not kind of that much older. We're talking about 30 to 40-year-olds. Um, that cohort of gay men in particular wants to start thinking about dating, and so there's a lot of opportunity to enable dating products for them, which we already have a lot of dating relationships that develop on Grindr, about one in four gay relationships in the U.S. originates on Grindr, but we think we can have a much better user set for them to um, 
to, to date better and to meet people a lot better. And mm. AI is a big part of that. Carolyn mentioned that a, a minute ago. Matching is a really huge opportunity yeah. for AI, obviously, because big data is so valuable in that regard. And, and that's something we will invest money and effort into as well. George, quickly, you stole some headlines with your return to office policies and the fact that that really cut down on some of the people that you employ. How has that affected the business, briefly? Um, it's going to have no impact on this year. Obviously, we raised guidance now twice, and so business is doing really well, and we're able to build all the things we need to build, and we're not in any way concerned about for that for next year uh, as well. I think what it does um, you know, allow us the opportunity to do is to attract people who really want to go after audacious goals, who want to go solve impossible things, and you know, deliver really great results for both our shareholders and our users. Grindr is this amazing place where you both can have a really great business and also do really awesome things for the user base, and mm. we'll continue to do that. All right, Grinder CEO George Harrison, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Cara, quick check-in on the markets. The story really one of eco-data, right? We got that inflation print showing, cooling inflation broadly. Look at the Nasdaq 100, up almost two percentage point. And you were talking, Cara, about the kind of shorter end of the curve. U.S. 10-year yield also seeing the yield pull back down some 17 basis points. Why do we cover rates? Well, they impact equity markets, as you see behind me. But it's kind of interesting how the conversation might change into private markets as well, right? When interest rates started to take off in the back half of 2021. What happened? Global VC funding came down. So even though the conversation now is about whether or not we're at peak rate, it's going to impact public and private markets going forward, which is something we love to discuss on the show. It certainly is. And that intersection. And well, actually, what we also love to discuss is the fact that technology hits every single industry group and not always in the most positive manner, in particular when it comes to cyber attacks. Look, just days after the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China got hit with that ransomware attack, members of the management, we understand, have jumped on a plane over the weekend to reassure market participants right here in the United States. Officials spoke with hundreds of member firms of the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, according to sources. But it's still unclear when the stricken systems will actually start functioning again. Of course, there's a big impact on the all-important bond market, Ed. Let's stick with cyber and data security and bring in Rubrik CEO Bupal Sinha. Rubrik's just put out its latest data security report. And, and I guess the, the best place to start is from a technology perspective, what was the conclusion? What is the threat that data holders, data users around the world face right now? It's a cyber mayhem out there. What our research report found was one in three people lost their personal information and they don't even know about it. Personal information such as social security number and other contact information. And what is also interesting is that uh, uh, Two out of the three organizations have data growing so fast that they can't even keep up with the data security. 98% of the uh, IT leaders are saying that they can't secure the the data because the data growth is so much. Just look at uh, what happened at MGM. MGM had $100 million cost because a lot of their customers' credit card information, contact information was actually stolen. I think the staggering figure that jumped out of me is that one in two or 50% of all companies that, that have had some kind of loss of data from a cyber incident, where is the threet coming from? You know, traditionally we'd say, oh, well, it's coming from Russia or China. 
Is that still the case? It's a combination of many things. You could have bored teenagers trying to monetize. You could have nation state actors, industrial espionage. I mean, the, the cyber landscape is much more complex, much more active is because the digital economy is becoming such a big part of the overall economy and, and cyber is a massive threat to our economy. Precisely, total volume of data at an organization that they need to secure is sort of rising, you say, 7x over the next five years. What on earth, then, is a CSO to do in this current environment? Just spend more and more, get more and more sort of focus on, on cyber, on, on bringing in more protections? How on earth can they battle this just absolute explosion of data? We have to reframe the cyber discussion. Cyber discussion so far has been about prevention of attacks, and that's what cybersecurity industry is doing the last 20, 30 years. We have to reframe the discussion from prevention to resilience. You have to do prevention, but that's not enough. Mm. The resilience says that you can continue to operate the business even in presence of cyber attacks and breaches. You, you protect your customer's information, your IP, your core business data, even when the breaches and attack happen. That's the future, cyber resilience. The future, many would say, is also how you deploy generative AI, AI more broadly, into becoming not only the attacker, but the protector here. You're backed by Microsoft, of course, which is pinning an awful lot of its future on artificial intelligence. How are you weaving it in at Brubrick? Cyber attacks have gone beyond human comprehension. You have to fight fire with fire. And as attackers are leveraging AI to generate more codes to actually attack you, you have to apply AI to understand what the heck is really going on because the data lives in on-premises, data lives in cloud, data lives in, in, in SaaS applications, and there are so much volume variability and velocity of data generation and usage that you have to apply AI to understand a bad actor touching your data in the cloud or bad actor touching your data into SaaS and how to connect all these dots to really deliver cyber resilience end to end. People, we're almost at the end of 2023, believe it or not. We started the year at CES where everyone said the private sector isn't doing enough ward off cyber threats. Then in April we went to RSA and everyone said the private sector is not doing enough to ward off cyber threats. By the end of 2023 will anyone have done anything to ward off cyber threats? See that everybody is trying hard. The challenge is that we are stuck in this old model of preventing attack, trying to stop attack. We need to reframe the discussion saying prevention is important but just relying on prevention is failure to plan. We need to have a strategic cyber, def cyber defense initiative which is assumes that attacks are inevitable and how do you continue to operate the business in presence of attacks have a strategy about resilience have a strategy about recovery because again the digital trust is important for a functioning economy and if you don't have digital trust if the systems are down for days and days just in case of MGM people's ability to transact and have confidence in the system will be very low people I want to ask more about your company, because quite clearly you've got a lot of problems to be solving for other businesses. Tell us a little bit about, well, the exuberance around 2023 wasn't just about people needing to invest in cyber. It was also about, will we get more public offerings? And your name came up time and time again. How is that trajectory going for Rubrik? 
Our business is very strong because of the fundamental realization that businesses have to have a plan of cyber recovery, cyber resilience, and that's what we are delivering in the marketplace. Obviously, given the interest rate environment, given the broader macro economy, the market is in a little bit of a situation. And we are watching the market. We are preparing ourselves when the market is right, when we are ready, we'll enter the public market. And that happening within 2023, I talked about how little of it is left, is on the cards? Um, I don't know, to be, to be uh, the honest answer, because uh, I will leave the market prediction to the market experts. But, uh, but again, I have a view that Rubrik will be a public company and we want to build a long-term company. CEO Bivol Sina, great to have some time with you of Rubrik. Thank you. Meanwhile, coming up, let's talk about women's health. The tech startup Circle gets backing from Sheryl Sandberg's new VC firm. Circle CEO Juan Carlos Riviera is going to be joining us next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Time now for VC Roundup. And first up, ByteDance co-founder Zhang Yiming. His five-month-old VC firm, Cool River Venture, has leased space in one of Hong Kong's most recognizable skyscrapers. An influx of Chinese financial houses have flocked to Hong Kong as it tries to promote itself as an Asian financial hub emerging from the well, barren years of COVID. Meanwhile, General Catalyst, Bain Capital, nearly actually three other dozen VC firms have signed a set of voluntary commitments with feedback from the Biden administration for how the startups they back should develop AI responsibly. It includes pledges to forecast AI risks and benefits and audit and test to ensure product safety, among many other things. Through these standards, though, aren't binding. And Collective Global, it wants to change how pensions access well, the innovation economy. It's a new investment fund, and it's co-owned by the California Pensions. It's launching with more than a billion dollars in committed assets under management and a goal of broadening the plan's exposure to venture capital, Ed. Let's stick with venture capital. In one of her first investments since leaving Meta, Sheryl Sandberg is backing the health tech startup Circle through her new venture capital fund, SBVP. Circle uses AI to analyze biomedical and genomics data with the goal of improving women's health and women's health care. 
Circle CEO Juan Carlos Rivero joins us now here in San Francisco. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So on Sheryl Sandberg's backing, there's the cash injection. But what does a kind of long-time tech executive like that bring you beyond just the money? Well, um, we are very proud and honored of having uh, Sheryl and Tom as an investor, like the rest of the investors in, in Circle. We are committed to improve women's health, and we are committed to do it using uh, data, and they are sharing that vision and that commitment because it's a huge uh, possibilities and room for improvement in a woman's health because it's massively underserved. Uh, historically, they have been out of medical studies until 30 years ago. Uh, there are roughly around 700 diseases that they take four and a half years to be diagnosed properly versus men. And the overall investment in, in women's health is below 2% as you exclude uh, oncology. So you can imagine that there is uh, room of opportunities to improve uh, women's health and using data, uh, we can do that. So we are very successful now. We are working with US Fertility, that is the largest clinic in the US by far. Uh, we are also in, in Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia, and Europe with Eurofins, which is one of the biggest uh, lab testing companies in genetics. So having the support of people like Cheryl and, and Tom is just going to help us to scale and make the company bigger and have it a bigger impact. Colin, how does the technology work? So I think the, the main difference uh, between us and, and everyone else is the scale and the resolution. We, have, we want to enable personalized and precision medicine uh, on women. And basically what it means is that every woman is different and, and what it works for some women doesn't work for others. Uh, we provide the tools and the data to the healthcare system to understand those differences, to provide the best solution for each of those women. It's basically what um, FDA calls real-world data, real-world evidence. So you need to understand the historical data in order that you can provide the best recommendation and the best solution for a new patient walking into the clinic or for a new drug development. So yeah. if we go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm interested in that data and that data collection. It says on your website that you strive to meet HIPAA compliance standards to ensure that privacy. But striving doesn't always mean hitting. How are you ensuring that this privacy to data remains, I'm sure, top of mind? So this is a very important question, and I'm, I'm thankful you're asking. So we are building this biomedical and genomics graph that basically connects billions of data points from um, medical reports, uh, biological data, and genomics data to enable that precise and precision medicine coming from multiple and different hospitals around the world. And we are doing it using our AI platform that anonymizes and removes all the PI information that is in those medical records to make sure that it's never possible to go back and, and, and take it, uh, all the personal information and also to understand it and merge it, put it all together to build that graph that can provide those unique insights uh, to improve the woman's health. So, we are using AI, we are spending a lot of time to make sure that uh, it's completely anonymized, secure, and, and, and it only build it to build the good things that we, can to, and we want to provide for, for women's health. Cheryl, of course, very passionate, I'm sure Tom too, about equality here and underserved community of women, but she's also a shrewd business person, both of them. And I'm interested in where the money, therefore, comes into your business. You're partnering with clinics, are they paying you? Where, where does the money flow back to you as a technology provider? So, 
first, we are talking about half of the population. Okay, so uh, any business that is targeting half of the population should be a very good business. That by default. And second, uh, as I say, we are working with those clinics and those fertility um, companies and, and, and fertility labs and genetic labs to improve their products in order that they can provide better care to improve the outputs, uh, outcomes. In this case, starting on fertility, um, there is room for improvement. Even though it's a great technology, doctors are doing great, but there is a room for improvement. So our business model comes working with those clinics and helping them to provide better tools and better solutions to all their patients, and, and it's going really well. Our revenue is growing. As I said, we are uh, not just growing quickly and fast in the U.S., but also in, in South America and in Europe, and, and, and the business is, is doing very well. And Carlos, what is it that Circle has done? Is it your own competence in machine learning, AI, or, or, or do you go to technology partners and take the work that others have done in AI to build out the underpinnings of the, of the platform? Uh, we build it our own technology. Okay, So in order to build the scale and the resolution that you need to provide precise medicines to billions of women. And you need to understand, in our body, we have 37 trillion different cells. Uh, so the scale that we need and the amount of data, it's, it's very important. There are a lot of companies that they can have billions of patients into their data, but they don't have the resolution in order to understand what is working or not working across all of those different women. This is uh, similar to if you want to drive between San Francisco and New York, you want to use maps that has all the data and all the resolution to make sure that you are taking the right direction all the time, you don't get lost, but also that has the scale because you want to go to all the different cities in the United States. To do that at that scale without human intervention and only using machines and in the secure way, like Caroline was suggesting, you need to have advanced machine learning technology that we have developed in houses. All that unstructured data that you're making sense of you call it, what I think, Medicine 3.0. We thank you, Circle CEO Juan Carlos Rivero there. Formula One's owners, that's Liberty Media, well, they've had to apologise to the city of Las Vegas for apparently the disruption caused by the Grand Prix scheduled for this weekend. It's all according to ESPN. Now, some residents have been, well, frustrated by the impact of the event. With limited access to the Strip and hotels during the week, Liberty CEO says the racing event will bring in around $1.7 billion of revenue to the city. So, well, I'm not sure how much apologising he really needs to do because I'm not sure how right. much they have to apologize to Monaco or anywhere else that they bring what is now like a well-loved sport. Yeah, so F1 has become huge in America in 2023, largely because of Netflix. But what's crazy about this, everyone's talking about it on social media. Yeah. It's a 3.8-mile track for a race that hasn't even taken place yet. So the weekend, Thursday's practice, Friday qualifying, Saturday race, and onwards, everyone's pretty up in arms. There's going to be fanfare. You can bet it. And I guess maybe if you like booked your trip to Las Vegas and didn't quite plan that, then maybe a bit frustrated not getting easily about. But I'm pretty sure there's going to be some good vibes only on the weekend. Need for speed. Okay, streaming. YouTube will soon require video makers to disclose when they've uploaded, manipulated synthetic content that looks realistic and that includes video which uses AI tools. Bloomberg's Davy Alba joins us with more. What is it that YouTube's requiring here and who is it that they're requiring it of, Davey? Yeah, thanks for having me. So YouTube said in its uh, blog post announcing this new policy that in the next year, creators who use YouTube's video platform need to check these new options um, on the creator side uh, and disclose when they have used synthetic or manipulated content. 
um, in their videos. And that would automatically create a label within the video description um, that indicates to readers that there is some synthetic content in there. And that would apply for any um, AI-generated video content, including YouTube's own AI-making mm. tools. Yeah, I mean, it's notable that actually they've been wanting to lure some of their key creators to use their own tools to bring generative AI to life. But this is particularly important when it comes to more sensitive types of content, right? Particularly when we're thinking of elections approaching or when you're thinking of healthcare. Is there more areas where the flagging is going to be more unique, more obvious? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned two key areas. Those are two that YouTube is actually looking at. Um, elections, ongoing conflicts, and public health crises, there will be a flag that is not just in the video description, but on the video player itself. And YouTube is saying that for these sensitive topics, there is a higher bar. You have to, you know, disclose these things to viewers. Mm. Um, and as part of the requirements that it is now putting onto these creators, um, if creators actually don't disclose these things consistently, they may be subject to penalties on YouTube, including removal of the content on the platform or being demonetized, so unable to make revenue from advertising on YouTube. I mean, Debbie, all of this feels like a bit of a no-brainer, particularly after Meta had just been announcing they're doing the same, particularly when it comes to ads that might well have, well, generated content within them. What is difficult about this for YouTube? Why has it taken them, well, a week later versus Meta, for example? Yeah, well, Google has actually announced um, a policy that would apply to political ads on all of its uh, platforms, including Google Search, you know, YouTube and elsewhere uh, that would flag users, um, people who are viewing the content, if there are AI-generated content in that. This is different because it applies to just content that is created on YouTube and not particularly for advertising. But, you know, Google is in a very special position here because they both create a generative AI tools that really anyone can use. And they have the platforms such as YouTube to distribute this kind of content far and wide. And so, you know, all year Google has been talking about the enormous responsibility that comes with AI and, you know, putting AI into the hands of people. And this is one demonstration of them trying to, you know, sort of walk the walk um, and say that, you know, we are doing the right thing. We are adding these disclosures, letting people know when generative AI is in use on our platforms. All about the responsibility when you're building the tech too. Bloomberg's Davy Alba, thank you so much for joining us on All Things YouTube. Meanwhile, look, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. And boy, another jam-packed show across earnings and indeed technological development, Ed. Yeah, and thanks to everyone out there that's listening to the podcast, recapping the show. We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and of course, all of the Bloomberg platforms. Coming up on Bloomberg Television, a live exclusive conversation with Ken, conversation with Ken Griffin of Citadel. That coming up in the next program. It is one that you do not want to miss. From here in San Francisco and out in New York City, this is Bloomberg Technology. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.